My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24th Framescast and on today's episode I'll be taking a look at the March 2013 Criterion releases um, from spine numbers 649 down to 652. Just one word of warning, I won't be looking at spine number 651 which was Terence Malick's Badlands. So I'm going to get straight on with a look at Fritz Lang's Ministry of Fear which was spine number 649. You're a strange person. I tell you all my trade secrets, and still you don't trust me. Why did you say you told fortunes at Lembridge? Why? Because I did. I was there. You weren't the one who told mine. Oh, that female battleship with the moons and stars? That's the one. Oh, she was some Lembridge woman. She wanted to keep the booth open after I left and practice her palmistry. Well, she did, and I got the cake. I suppose you don't know about that either. Of course. But how did you get it? What was in it? I don't know. Was there supposed to be something in it? That's the truth. The lady in the cake booth asked me to let her gentleman friend win it. If someone came to me and said, don't bother about the past, tell me the future, I was to give him the correct way. Did you say that? Something like it. Oh, well, that explains it. Now are you happy? I've got exactly nowhere. Now, the propaganda film is a subgenre of cinema that, when done badly, can turn an hour and a half into what feels like seven. Not so subtle stereotypes often reduce an entire nation to crude misrepresentations, complete with embarrassingly awful caricature impersonations from actors putting on the best, worst accents known to man. They can also be sublime, such as In Which We Serve and Went the Day Well, are not only fine propaganda films, but they are also simply near classic films to boot. Now, both types of film, both good and bad, were made in the Second World War by British studios. And notable examples from this period include things like Hitchcock's Lifeboat. Um, you can hear more on my other podcast with Joachim talking about that on the Master yeah. Cinema cast. And that was an American production and a pretty great film also. And I think what makes the better ones stand out is that they don't treat their audiences like something out of George Orwell's 1984. In all of them, you see the death of allies or supposedly the good guys moral dilemmas and of course good old blitz spirit helping win over the day and it was with some kind of curiosity that Criterion announced Fritz Lang's Ministry of Fear because I have to be honest it was a film that I'd never actually heard of and Fritz Lang is one of my favourite directors and I've never seen this film before in my life and I won't be spug but I kind of know that a director like him would not be making another in which we serve type film and by that I kind of meant I thought that this film would be a bit more kind of cerebral in a way. And when I found out it was based on a Graham Greene novel, um, I was even more intrigued. And it's not so much a propaganda film. I, I think it's more of a noir thriller and something you would expect from kind of Graham Greene. But it's a slightly balmy tale also. And um, with Lang's kind of directorial eye thrown into mix, I had, I think, high expectations for this film. Armed with what I thought were the perfect ingredients for a night of film noir, including a howling gale outside and a bottle of red wine in my house myself I sat down and was so quite frankly surprised from beginning to end um, and a lack not in the manner of which I was expecting just to kind of rewind a little bit I, by 1944 when this film was made the the war was very much swinging in favor of the allies and on, no one would dare say it. I think the confidence was there that the war was going to be won and the world knew that the Nazis were evil the evidence from liberated lands was beginning to speak for itself and in part, this may explain why I think Ministry of Fear is the way it is. You know, Fritz Lang had fled Nazi Germany, and there's much debate about how he actually did this. And um, I, 
from what he said, he was asked to, um, I think it was Goebbels, to be head of the Nazi propaganda film unit. And he actually kind of said he escaped the next day. But I think there's some kind of confusion. It appears that he stayed in Germany a few weeks more after. I don't I don't really know. It's one of those ones where um, got a lot of conjecture. I don't really think it kind of reflects too badly. I think, I think perhaps he wanted to just make it out that he had fled sooner than he did. Um, but, you know, we obviously don't know the circumstances. I'm sure he was under a lot of pressure. But Ministry of Fear wasn't the first film that he did for the kind of the war effort. There was um, Hangman Also Die and Manhunt, um, and the story of which revolves around someone trying to kill Hitler. Um, but Ministry of Fear is altogether different from these and other films of its ilk because no one... Because on the one hand, it feels exactly like a Fritz Lang film, complete with kind of surrealist imagery and kind of a brooding sense of mental abstraction. Yet it's also far too restrained in many respects. And it's as if the studio, who were Paramount, didn't quite want Lang to go off the least too much kind of reminds me i suppose a bit kind of how like john woo has operated in hollywood and the film is set during the blitz where we have a character called stephen neal played by ray millen who leaves an asylum where he's being sentenced to stay after helping his wife kill herself who is suffering from incurable illness and the story itself it's a kind of a classic MacGuffin, and a, a very much a kind of it reminded me of um something like kind of the 39 steps by hitchcock uh I won't kind of go into the kind of the ins and outs of the narrative, but basically this guy leaves an asylum. He kind of comes across a village fate, which just happens to be in full swing. And um, yeah, this rather kind of crazy tale of him being pursued by mysterious kind of sleeper Nazis and this kind of being framed for a murder he didn't commit. And, you know, like most thrillers, I suppose, Ministry of Fear relies on a good old fashioned MacGuffin, as uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg would say. And and in this case, it is um, the kind of the, the kind of the story is initiated when he wins a cake at a fair, and even by kind of MacGuffin standards, I think this is a fairly crap one. What makes it worse is that the film opts for the convention of the wrong man, wrong time place, and with the rather comical mothers of the free nations as seemingly at the centre of thing, it soon becomes a rather yawn-inducing romp. I think we kind of went on slightly familiar territory with Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much who came out a few months ago and in some ways and kind of both films use this kind of hook of having these kind of crazy kind of women's groups behind some kind of larger global conspiracy and I think neither Hitchcock or Lang takes them seriously enough to make their plans seem anything more than just a convenient script device and very soon our hero is attacked on a train and the cake stolen by a blind man and the first place Neil goes really should be the police. Instead, he opts to go to a drunken private eye who, when he actually walks in on him the first time, is drinking from a bottle. And the film even has kind of, you know, a, a humorous little music cue for these moments. And he even admits his hotel, uh, Neil even admits, sorry, his hotel has been ransacked. And we don't actually see this, but, you know, all these time I'm kind of wondering to myself, why don't you just go to the police? Which obviously he doesn't because we have a story to get through. And... You know, I'm, I'm sat there kind of, again, it's, it's this kind of issue that I have with logic in films at the moment. I'm finding it increasingly hard just to kind of, you know, let films carry on and, and, and enjoy them for what they are rather than kind of logically thinking to myself, well, why don't you just do this? Because I think it makes characters seem a little bit stupid. And I don't think things are helped as well because Raymond is a pretty crap actor. In fact, he actually kind of annoyed me throughout. He didn't seem kind of macho enough and a rather kind of skewed sense of priorities. Excuse me, there didn't seem to be anyone here. What 
do you want? I'm looking for Mr. Rennett. I'm Mr. Rennett. You should have made an appointment. Evidently, you don't want clients. Good morning. Now, 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 now. <laughs> you don't want to lose your temper. I'm a busy man. There are ways of doing things. Take a chair. And we'll both have a drink. What a bad idea. It's an excellent idea. And you know, this being a wartime film, we have to have some um, good old-fashioned refugees in it, and we have that in the form of Carla and Willis, who are, uh, who oh, it's Carla and Willis, who are both kind of Austrian. And um, at first, I actually thought they had kind of quite bad accents, but then a bit of research, and I realised kind of Carl Esmond, who plays Willie, um, was actually um, Austrian. However, uh, Marjorie uh, Marjorie Reynolds, who plays Carla, wasn't, and her accent is truly quite god awful. However, the pair serve a purpose of telling us how awful the Nazi are and how they've been kicked out of Austria, etc., etc. And I guess the only kind of real hint of how awful the kind of the the enemy comes is in the bombings. And um, you know, Neil and Carla seek shelter in kind of the, in under the underground, but because of the film's budget, there seems to forbid any wide shots, so you can't even get an idea of the kind of the amount of people down there, kind of getting away from this nightly ordeal and I don't really think you can see this as a propaganda film of sorts. You know, I think things had relaxed by October 1944, and you know, as I said before, the war was on the way to being won. And I think what Ministry of Fear is trying to do is kind of be a kind of a, a bit of escapist entertainment you know, to kind of take people's you know, minds of it, kind of perhaps. And um, it, it does have its funny moments. Um, the rude fortune teller at the fairground is, is a particular favourite. It seems that the village fate is something of a kind of a feminist camp, as she explains heaven help the woman um he ends up with um in reference to neil and you know he's only actually been in there a few seconds before she's decided that he's, he's not the kind of the right kind of guy uh, you know obviously she's right because he, he annoyed the shit out of me actually throughout the film but then there's kind of the porter at the railway station who informs him that the germans are about to start bombing and then adds the caveat that i hope they don't bomb the railway well as i'm sure kind of probably most people from the train don't but um, overall, these characters simply don't stand out. And if they don't sparkle or seep into the consciousness when they really should, it's hard to be bothered about what's going on in the film when you really don't care about the characters. Ministry of Fear does have some kind of classic rich lane touches. You know, the sharp vertical lines frankly carve up the image. You know, shadows bathe the image. Indeed, it's a very dark film altogether. And I'm not just talking about its tone either. I mean, its finest moments come during a seance hosted, of course, by a vampish noir type. And yet Lang uses all the tricks in the tray. You know, Neil is taught, is kind of tormented by the voice of his dead wife, and Lang overlays a kind of cock swinging back and forth and keeps lighting, you know, key lighting shadows um, Neil's face before the scene is interrupted by a gunshot. It's all very atmospheric, but it's a rare scene in the film that, for the most part, feels so limp and, for a better word, dull. I don't really think that this is the type of film Lang is suited for. Yes, it is very stylistic, but tonally it is all over the place, ranging from absurdist humour to the rather silly to the apparent thrilling and scary. Lang is, in my mind, better suited for far darker material. I think he likes to delve into characters' psyche, not, not matter how uncomfortable the mind that is. And at one stage, I actually thought this was going to happen. Um, when we first see Neil, um, we have no idea he's in an asylum and Lang reveals this when he walks past a wall and hey presto shows a sign with the name of the asylum written on it. And so what I was thinking here, we have someone who could legitimately be called insane or at least some kind of mental health problem. And you know when Neil then goes to buy a train ticket, having said that he wants to get away from his sign as soon as possible, over the soundtrack we suddenly hear the sound of the village fair and in fact this actually fades in on the soundtrack indicated that it may indeed be some kind of part of his psychosis or something like that and we then cut to what is essentially a POV shot and the fair is literally right across the road and what I was thinking here was like oh, this is some kind of like strange delusion playing out and 
it wasn't at all. It was a rather poor excuse to introduce the film's MacGuffin. In a way, it's cheating, the fact that we don't hear it, and then it is brought onto the soundtrack. I kind of thought to myself, well, you know, we could have easily kind of heard it as soon as he walked into the shot. It's, it's that kind of worst type of filmmaking, I think, and in a sense, it kind of renders the scene within buying the ticket completely pointless, really, and indeed, at kind of half an hour, you know, having this kind of scenes of not much going on, it, it just feels like the film's being padded out to fill an hour and a half, which I, I actually think is exactly what is going on. And I also must take the film's kind of score to task as well, because Miklos Rosa is one of all-time greats, you know, who can't love his work on Ben-Hur, but this feels so phoned in. Um, it's almost like outtakes, and it's it's so predictable. It's almost kind of renders, almost feels like kind of caricature. The screenplay by Senator Miller is also at times utterly laughable given Neil has been framed for murder and is clearly involved in something quite shocking. So even more strangely, whilst all this is going on, he has actually had time to kind of hit on Carla and you know, take her out for night, um, take her out for dinner one night when apparently he's being framed for murder. I mean, and I'm sat there thinking, come on, you know, what is this? Who you know, what, why are we seeing this? And for an OR or you know a thriller so to speak Miller's screenplay never really gets going it's just flat dull exposition fills the dialogue and it feels that the actors feel like they're merely speak, saying their lines rather than kind of putting any effort into it and there's not much really for any kind of self-respecting thespian to work with and I, I rather wonder if Lang didn't know the characters well enough to coax meaningful performances out of his cast when I left Lembridge I told Dr Morton I was coming to London to spend a quiet life it's been like riding down the side of a whirlpool. From what you say about the ministry, Willie and I are only a half turn behind you. We'll get out of it all right. Even if I have to drown somebody's free mothers first. You wouldn't object? <laughs> no. Someday when I get back to that quiet life, I, I want to ask you if you'd be interested in it too. Willie asked me if I was falling in love with you. And I said, yes. But I think the, the screenplay's biggest sin is is the the love story between Neil and Carlo. And um, you know, despite knowing each other what must be less than two days, they are they fall in love apparently. And it, it, it makes kind of Deckard and Rachel in Blade Runner like kind of Jack and Rose from Titanic, which really is quite saying something. And I, I, I can see why they're in there, and God knows it must have been awful living through the war. So, you know, going to the cinema, you know, need to be a bit of escape from depression uh, uh, and, you know, a bit of high octane adventure and violence, but that doesn't mean it works. And in this case, I think it's something of a train wreck. In a nutshell, I think the film is just a little bit too silly for its own good. The baddies never seem scary or practically threatening and results in that the film lacks the kind of suspense it should. I was neither gripped by the over, ever so slightly daft plot. Seriously, all this kind of crap with the cake. It just feels like a hatchet job cobbled together of noir cliches, stereotypical characters, bland acting and pedestrian directing, which for a Lang film, I think is really kind of saying something. I think it's quite telling that in 1984, when Graham Greene was introducing a retrospective of his work, he described Ministry of Fear as one of the very bad one. And Lang too approached him a bar some years later and actually apologised for having even made it. And I don't think the apology was really necessary. I, you know, Lang was, of course, only looking for a project and on paper it, it would have at least perhaps seemed like a quite a, a fairly attractive proposition. But 
I can see why Ling, why Green described it as very bad. For Ministry of Fear profoundly lacks the enjoyment factor. It, it really should have. I, I think it might be a case, perhaps you know, Lang just wasn't the right man for the job, or indeed it wasn't a very good story in the first place. But you know, Carol Reed seemed to get Green, and you know, the Odd Man and the Third Man are both were both made with the author's collaboration, and but you know, Green also kind of heralded them as masterpiece, but. And perhaps just laying this was you know a, a case of kind of wrong time, wrong place, as it were. And at a brisk eighty-seven minutes, you should at least get a bright, breezy town with a few ups and downs to keep you entertained. Films like this, I think, need pace and possibly larger scale. And most scenes in the film take place in various different drab rooms and with just two characters exchanging dialogue. And they th- the scenes just feel kind of shoehorned in from one to the next. And if you compare it with something like The Lady Vanishes or The 49th Parallel, even Night Train to Munich, um, the other Carol Reed film, which I wasn't so keen on, all these films have scale and humour, and Ministry of, of Fear, in contrast, is a succession of dull, at times slightly ridiculous scenes that collectively make for a quite forgettable and quite frankly dull experience. I'm not sure why Criterion have opted to put this this in the collection. Yes, and, and I suppose it's Lang, but this really is, a, I think it's, it's a rubbish film. And there are similar and vastly better films in the collection. And it rather feels like this is a spine number filler um, that really isn't that kind of worth picking up. I mean, it doesn't really have any kind of features on the disc either. And I noticed that you can pick it up for something like $20 already on Amazon in America and to be brutally honest with you, um, if you have an interest in Fritz Lang, I guess you know you might feel compelled to check it out. But I don't really think there's much here for even the most diehard of Lang film uh, fans to enjoy. Ce bâtiment est la prison militaire de Montluc, à Lyon, en 1943. De cet univers de ciment et de fer cerné par les mitrailleuses allemandes, un homme a réussi à s'échapper. Un seul, le lieutenant André de Vigny. C'est l'histoire de cet exploit unique que raconte le nouveau film de Robert Bresson. D'un côté, des murs, des barreaux, des soldats, des armes. De l'autre, un homme seul, désarmé, battu d'avance. Cette confrontation dramatique d'un monstre et d'un homme, la prison et son prisonnier, a été reconstituée par Robert Bresson sous les yeux mêmes du héros qu'il a vécu. Certains épisodes pourront paraître incroyables, mais la vérité rigoureuse dépasse toutes les fictions. Un condamné à mort s'est échappé, Et pourtant, ceux qui entraient à Montluc devaient quitter toute espérance. Okay, so next up was Spine Number 650, which was Luc Bresson's 1956 film, A Man Escaped. Now, Bresson is something of a criterion mainstay, and he's one of those directors who, every time I see his work, um, I'm always impressed by them. And I have something that I call uh, Phantom Menace Syndrome, in which I feel a strange sense of guilt that I've seen that film over ten times. Yet I've only seen the likes of Diary of a Country Priest once. And it's always nice, therefore, to come across a film that I know I should have watched a long time ago and never really got round to watching. And it's one of those, Man Escape is one of those that certainly lived up to its billing as one of the greatest escape films ever made. And 
it was actually Bresson's fourth film, and he's kind of regarded as one of the pantheon of great French directors, along with Renoir, um, you know, Truffaut, um, well, Goddard, if, 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 if you feel like that. I mean, obviously, I think I've, I've voiced my opinions on him before, but and certainly when you see Bresson's work, I, th I think it's quite clear to me why he's thought of in that context. And I think A Man Escaped is certainly, for the most part, the most enjoyable of his films I've seen so far. And it's based on the true story of a man called Andre Dini, who was imprisoned by the Nazis during World War II. And Dini later managed to escape from this prison and from the, for the purpose of the film is actually renamed Fontaine, played by Francis Leterrier. And it's a film which is very much a procedural of sorts and it's one man up against an almost impossible world who has to use every ounce of his cunning to escape his captors and the escape film is a genre which i think is made for sunday afternoon kind of viewing uh, my personal preferences are that the films are set during the second world war and have kind of stiff upper lip british toffs outfoxing the germans and it's, I, th I think it's easy to write off films like the coldest story and the great escape as kind of fluffy entertainment and although they are extremely enjoyable, I do. I would also contest they are also exceptional films. And let's not forget, I think that one of the kind of greatest films ever made, um, Jean Renoir's *La Grande Illusion*, is an escape film. And it may have the reputation as being something of a kind of art house favourite, but one of a, its most appealing aspects to me is just how entertaining a film it actually is. And I feel like *A Man Escape* is more *Grand Illusion* than *The Great Escape*. And certainly, in, in, in kind of its kind of stylistic tone and. I suppose the fact that it is kind of considered kind of more art housey, I guess, than something which The Great Escape, which has this kind of like huge ensemble cast and that kind of rather jaunty, central theme. But I, I'm, not only do I think this is one of the, the best escape films ever made, I, I think personally, in my experience, I think it's one of the greatest films I've ever seen. What I particularly liked about it is how kind of subtle it is at times. Um, kind of the enemy, for the most part, which is obviously the Nazis, are almost completely off screen. And when we do see the guards, it's only kind of fleetingly you know, just through kind of like doors or kind of a small kind of crack in the wood or something like that. And I, I kind of enjoyed this immensely because so often in these films, the kind of the Germans are these kind of sadistic evildoers. But in this film, it all happens off screen. And it kind of, it's almost like it's taking it, it. I think in a way it kind of like says to its audience, you know what these people are like. And really the kind of the torture and the murder, we know that's happening, but really we're just going to focus on this story of how Fontaine is going to escape. And I like it because, in a way, they seem almost even more powerful in the film. Their kind of control over Fontaine is complete. His bloodied shirt indicates the physical punishment he's been subject to. We hear their voices and whistles and the inmates silently complying with the commands. And very quickly, prison life is established. A dull routine of washing, cleaning, and in Fontaine's case, desperately trying to plot his escape. It has a duly bleak tone, and Mozart's mass in C minor fitters in and out of the soundtrack, along with Fontaine's voiceover. He quite clearly states that he had no illusions of escape, he says in one scene before looking heavenwards, and it is immediately followed by one of the film's core themes. A Man of Escaped is very much a film about faith, and Bresson has often been labelled a religious director. And I, I think faith um, is very interestingly explored in this film, and as an atheist especially, I probably took some—I probably took from it something which probably more more religious inclined wouldn't. From from the very sort of beginning, um, when Fontaine gets into prison, the fellow prisoners say that escape is impossible, yet he steadfastly refuses to accept this. And a kind of an early indication um, of his kind of would-be escaping skills are found when he comes across a paperclip. 
and very quickly the object is used to take his cuffs off and clearly what the film establishes this is a man of very great ability however the more we see of the prison the more we're kind of inclined perhaps to think that the fact that escape is impossible may be quite an accurate assessment of the situation and this is further compounded by the fact that Fontaine is moved from the ground floor of the prison to the top and his cell is tiny bar a small window which is he can look out of and see the yard so it kind of begs the question how can he possibly get out and a fellow inmate Terry one night appears at his door and no explanation is given how Terry has done this but clearly there is a way he can do it and again I think Bresson lays down some groundwork that the prison may have its weaknesses which can be exploited and it's here that we get into the realm of the fant of fantasy or what I call miracles because miracles do not happen however Bresson himself said that in the film that he wanted to show the miracle of an invisible hand over the prison directing what happens and ironically I find the film shows the exact opposite to be true because to me it is showing us how practical ability and human fortitude and weaknesses in the prison itself are the methods of his escape not any kind of divine intervention and you know Bresson constantly reminded us, reminds us by showing us Fontaine turning things like a spoon into a chisel and bed springs and duvet covers into rope as we see his kind of plan begin to take shape we're kind of constantly questioning well how is he going to get over this hurdle how is he going to get over that hurdle and through the kind of the, the voiceover which exudes a kind of complete calm and coolness he clearly is a highly skilled and focused and singly minded determined to escape and I think to say that this is kind of the divine hand of intervention kind of really lessens the human achievement of what Fontaine and the real life character actually managed to achieve and what's interesting is how the other prisoners begin to see Fontaine because this is where I think a kind of another aspect of faith is shown because they themselves begin to place some kind of their hope onto him and they kind of give him kind of motivational speeches there is a priest in the prison who gives him passages to kind of err him on and, and there's kind of you know there's not so subtle kind of references I mean there's, there's references to being born again in order to kind of get over this kind of hurdle of the mental hurdle of trying to escape yet by the same virtue the film is constantly showing us how practically Fontaine is managing his escape and there clearly is no miracle there is no divine intervention he's doing this all of his own accord there's you know, another aspect of the film where he begins to tap on the wall to the person that in the other cell and it, apparently we find out later that this kind of Fontaine making contact with this person actually stopped them from killing themselves and again it seems that this is kind of Fontaine's kind of doing this thing you know kind of the hand of God almost is kind of directing him to do this and I, I just it's just a coincidence that this happens uh, it just it just happens to be that when he knocks on on the cell the man is attempting to do that and it, it's very interesting because I mean this is kind of I suppose how a lot of people um well what a lot of people use this as bit the types of situations like this as being evidence of a kind of a divine being and I, I can kind of personally relate it to a story in which about in fact, when I moved over to Manchester about 10 years ago, I was coming back to the apartment block that I lived in and the air conditioning unit fell off the roof in, in winds and it actually landed literally about three feet in front of me and it, it would have killed me. It was the size of a large fridge and my friend and I stood there and we were absolutely gobsmacked and 
the only thing that saved us was when we were leaving the bar we were in, I realized as I walked out, I forgot my coat. So I went back and got it. It was almost the exact time difference that stopped me from being hit by the, the um, air conditioning unit because we would have had to have waited at the door and type in the key code and all that kind of thing. And when I was kind of regaining this story once to someone who was a Christian, she said, well, you know, this was to her, that was evidence that God had spared me. And I, I think it kind of prompts a really kind of sort of like a deeper debate, which is, you know, wh why has God allowed this to happen? Why, why is he, you know, why hasn't he intervened? Why has he allowed Fontaine to go to prison? to be tortured and have people around him being shot and killed. Why is he allowed that to happen then to go through this kind of ordeal of having to escape? It doesn't make any sense. And, I, and as I explained to the, my friend about the, uh, the air conditioning unit, she said, well, obviously God intervened on your behalf to save your life. And it was like, it's nothing of the sort. I just forgot my coat and I went back and I got it. That's, you know, it's not a miracle. It's just luck that I didn't, or, you know, even, you know, it's just, well, not even luck, because luck isn't a tangible thing. Luck's something which, it's just a word, really. It doesn't really, I think it has no sort of kind of practical implication in life. I mean, if you win the lottery, it, it, it's highly, highly unlikely you will win the lottery. But if you win it, you win it. It's not a miracle. It's just that, you, you know, you've picked the numbers that will win. It, you know, luck has nothing to do with it. People aren't born with having more luck than others. Um... And although I, you know, press on, obviously, I mean, who am I to argue with him when he says that this is a film about, you know, divine intervention? But to me, as an atheist, I just see this and think, well, no, it's a film about human achievement, because it's like the, the, you know, the soldier that throws himself on the grenade and saves his buddies, and they say, oh, well, you know, they try to ascribe it to kind of a divine um, intervention. I think it actually detracts from the human experience, and that's what I loved about this film. I think it shows how kind of resourceful and impressive a species humans can be and and i guess it's one of the interesting things about the film you know you, you can look at it and see god i look at it and see man um you know up against the odds and overcoming those odds it, 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 his escape um it's not a miracle we, we you know we, we it certainly it, the film goes such to such length to show us that it was entirely possible that to call it a miracle is completely disingenuous but again you know that's what happens i think i think when we kind of get into the kind of subject of religion we, you tend to sort of you you get out what you put in and as an atheist i don't perceive this film as how a christian would and yeah i think that's one of the I, I guess one of the things I, I do love about this film, you know, it, it's, it's incredibly entertaining. And also, if you can dig a little deeper, you, know, you can kind of get in debates about, you know, kind of religion, which is, I, I think really the role of film is to kind of inspire us to think a little bit more about what we see on screen. Now, I just want to talk a little bit really about kind of the film's technical aspects, because I, I would say that A Man Escaped is, the opening of it at least, is a really kind of a perfect example of character establishment. Fontaine sits in the back of a car, having been captured by the Gestapo, and is on his way to prison. Now, not a word is spoken as the camera moves around, and we begin to see what is truly going on. Fontaine is mentally planning his escape. He watches out the window, he looks towards the door handle, and without saying a word, Bresson is telling us a great deal about the character. Firstly, this man is a survivor. He's methodical and cunning and also extremely brave. And Bresson strips the film back into its barest components. There is no kind of, as I said, there's no kind of sadistic governor to contend with. Um, every, you know, I think brutal happens off screen. Bresson does is that he takes a microscope and looks at the mechanics of breaking out of prison. And because the film is based on a true story, 
almost everything that we see is taken from fact, which is another example why I really like it, because in some ways it reminded me of Jules Dessin's Rafifi, and in, in a kind of, like, I guess, a more kind of a more contemporary example would be something like Michael Mann and, and a film like Thief, because all these films show us professional men, albeit from different sides of the law, and how they go about the task of whatever it is they are doing, both kind of legal and illegal, I suppose. And the rule of cinema is show, don't tell. And through Fontaine's action, we can instantly see him in that opening, applying the same kind of mental thought to how he's going to later escape from the film. And it's refreshing to see a film that doesn't have kind of any kind of extraneous backstory to contend with either. We don't really need kind of like a deeper reason to know why Fontaine is doing what he's doing. We don't kind of, we know, we know he's going to be executed at some point and kind of with the vast majority of the film taking place in his cell, in his cell Bresson has to use really kind of all the elements of film to really kind of craft the kind of the suspense and the drama. And one of the best ways he does that is through sound. Now, the sound design in the film is multi-layered. On the first hand, we have Fontaine's voiceover and the voiceover is clearly in the future tense um, as he's talking about scenes clearly after the fact of having experienced them and he kind of gives us very basic information how he's feeling kind of what what kind of the kind of the texture of the cell he's in and I know some people don't like voiceovers especially especially in the past tense and I think one of the most kind of the ones that really kind of ruffles people is um, probably something like American Beauty. Obviously, the kind of the lead character, um, he's talking from the grave or beyond the grave, I suppose. And in A Man Escaped, clearly the fact that we can hear Fontaine um, is kind of a spoiler, really, because obviously he has escaped. But I think I don't think it detracts from the drama. I, I still think the kind of even though obviously we know that he must have got out for him to be kind of regaling us with these stories, um, I still think the film doesn't kind of suffer in any way, shape, shape or form, because the other aspect of it really in terms of the sound is the sound effects and each and kind of every item in the cell has its very own distinct sound you know, from the spoons kind of on the floor to kind of ripping fabric we are always acutely aware of the fact that sound could lead to Fontaine's downfall and the kind of the excitement and fear this creates is all is all too apparent um, you, know, you can always you can always hear guns going off in the background, so we know they're actually killing people. And I, I think it kind of it, you mentally put it together. You know, this spoon making a noise can lead to him being shot. And also, kind of sound is gives him Fontaine clues as how we can possibly escape. We kind of hear a guard winding a skylight, and then f from a POV shot, we see kind of Fontaine see him doing this. And yeah, you know, film doesn't have kind of any narration or anything like that. Doesn't have any dialogue, but it, it's amazing how this kind of sound is used to kind of put this massive jigsaw together. And in one quite brilliant scene, um, Fontaine actually makes, he makes a sound whilst working. And in the distance, we hear the guard begin to walk slowly down towards his cell. And we cut to a low angle shot of the door and the peephole letting in light in. And as Fontaine kind of calmly sits on his bed, kind of pretending nothing's happened, we see the guard stand over the peephole. And it, it's quite a brilliant moment because nothing is said. And it's just how noise and this very simple shot of light covering up the peephole shows us how close he is possibly to being caught in his plan and it's a genuinely I think on the edge of your seat moment just but using the most basic style of filmmaking and when he actually escapes there's a 
Yeah, we, knew, we also knew Sam to kind of get a kind of an idea for how close he is to getting out of the prison. We can hear a bell chiming in the distance and we can hear a train that's disguising their noise, which allows them to move so the guards can't hear him. And it's it's a masterclass, really, I think, um, in how to construct this type of cinema because you know, there's no music over it and there's no kind of, I, I guess, kind of pompous dialogue to ruin it. It's just very basic and effective filmmaking. And I think Bresson films have often been described as a stir. And I think when people say this, I think what they're kind of saying is that they find them slightly cold or unengaging. And I don't think Bresson uses the same kind of tactics and mechanics of cinema that a lot of other directors do. And, you know, Stanley Kubrick is another kind of one who's often kind of associated with this type of kind of disconnect. And you know, they find it hard to kind of warm to his characters. And I, I've never actually kind of had this issue. I mean, kind of like Barry Lyndon, for example, is, is a film about a rather stupid per chancer. And yet by the end of that film, you, you, you do genuinely feel sorry for him, I, I think. And, you know, he, he's, not, he's not an evil person. He's just a, yeah, he's just this, this kind of rather silly boy who kind of gets way in over his head. And for, I think Bresson characters sort of remind me in this way, in that, you know, when we're kind of hearing Fontaine's voiceover, for example, it's all very kind of clear facts into kind of how he's thinking and what he's doing and what you don't hear him sort of saying is how, how you know he just can't wait to get out there and walk along the beach with his love and see his son you know i don't know play his first football match or something like it doesn't give you the, those kind of nuggets that you normally get and press on kind of construct scenes in a very kind of in, very matter of fact way they're very short and they're just more like kind of a collage of vignettes that kind of build to a bigger whole and Sometimes you know, you'll see Fontaine talking to someone, there won't even be a reverse shot, it's just a mid shot of him talking. And he reuses the same locations over and over. And you have the stairwell, the washroom, the cell, the courtyard. And we kind of, you know, a simple fade or an abrupt cut, you know, Bresson moves the film on at an electric place, and it's very much you have to keep up with it. And I, I, I really love that about it. I mean, if you think about a film like The Shawshank Redemption, which you know, it's a, I know it's, a, it's an escape from it, but it's a complete, you know, it's a ho very Hollywood film where it kind of you know, it withholds information from us to give us that kind of shock moment at the end. And we have that, you know, um, Andy Dufresne look, you know, looking Christwards in the rain up to the heavens and all this kind of thing. And, it, you know, it's a fantasy film of shorts. It, it, it's, it, it's a Hollywood film that wants to kind of very deliberately make you feel certain emotions. And A Man Escaped isn't. It's a film which is kind of really kind of stripped of any kind of melodrama it's just a very kind of matter-of-fact film and I think I just want to talk a little bit about kind of um, DOP, Leonce Baruel's, um, the way he kind of shoots it because it, it's shot in a standard Academy ratio and for 1956 this wasn't really that uncommon but some filmmakers were switching to the 185 ratios and stylistically I think the, the Academy ratio is the perfect choice for this because the prison feels even more cramped and often the framing of the shots is blocked with kind of walls and doors and you sense that we, we, we're seeing really what Fontaine sees or, or at least we're getting a very restricted view of what of how Fontaine must be experiencing this kind of life in the prison and some of the takes I you know they, they go on for quite a long time and they don't change angles I, I feel that kind of kind of Burrell and Bresson don't want you to be kind of sidetracked by their style or their kind of you don't feel the hand of the filmmakers 
um, in the film, which I think, again, it's quite refreshing. I, I was wondering, I was watching it and I was, I was sort of thinking, God, how would Orson Welles have made this film? And I, I'm, I'm pretty certain it would have been a pretty incredible film. However, it had been so different to how, how this film looks. This kind of restraint that Bresson exhibits, um, to me anyway, it, it's the type of filmmaking that really kind of appeals to my sensibilities. And, you know, I guess the, the perform, you know, the, you know, you've got so much kind of repetition kind of visually you know, kind of being shown at, I, I think it's perfectly in keeping with what they're trying to say about the routine of this prison. That is this kind of day after day is the same, just waiting to be shot. And, you know, I guess the characters might seem a little bit robotic, but you know, think about, you know, put yourself in you know, Fontaine's shoes. I mean, he hasn't got time to kind of sit around kind of, you know, crying about his hard luck. This man needs to get out, and I think that's what Bresson just wants us to look at. Um, I can honestly say A Man Escaped is one of the purest uh, cinematic experiences that I've had in a long time. Um, it, it doesn't have any artifice about it, and it, it doesn't romanticise its characters. It, it doesn't beg you to love Fontaine. It just wants you to kind of show us this kind of uncomplicated story and is told in a methodical yet utterly compelling fashion. Um, it's strange because... I, I could watch this film over and over again. I don't. I don't ever think it will. It will tire on me. And I, you know, to, to say that about a film, um, you know, it's quite a rare thing. Uh, and I could. I definitely feel a man escape will be one which stays with me for the rest of my life. Um, a really fantastic transfer on this as well. It's definitely worth picking up the Blu-ray edition. Some really decent features as well. And overall, just an absolute gem of a film. And I absolutely loved it. Monsieur Verdue, you have been found guilty. Have you anything to say before sentence is passed upon you? Oui, monsieur, I have. However remiss the prosecutor has been in complimenting me, he at least admits that I have brains. Thank you, monsieur, I have. And for 35 years, I used them honestly. After that, nobody wanted them. So I was forced to go into business for myself. As for being a mass killer, does not the world encourage it? Is it not building weapons of destruction for the sole purpose of mass killing? Has it not blown unsuspecting women and little children to pieces and done it very scientifically? <laughs> As a mass killer, I'm an amateur by comparison. However, I do not wish to lose my temper because very shortly, I shall lose my head. Nevertheless, upon leaving this spark of earthly existence, I have this to say. I shall see you all very soon. Very soon. Okay, so next up was Charlie Chaplin's 1947 film, Spine Number 652, Monsieur Verdoux. And you may have heard me say on this podcast that I hate Charlie Chaplin. And I just think we need to kind of rewind and clarify for a moment. It's not that I don't realise that Chaplin is a master craftsman of his trade. I can see why he's so beloved. It just doesn't work for me, and I don't find it funny, even if I try and sit there through one of his films, my mind wanders, and for lack of a better word, I get bored and quickly start thinking about other things. I received a scathing email from a very upset listener once about Chaplin, and I said to that person that I just simply don't enjoy his work, much like I don't enjoy the work of Mike Lee, for example. And, and it does happen from time to time, where we just have these kind of 
people that we like or don't like and it seems to kind of fly in the face of everything that we should like perhaps and you know again <laughs> I stand by my feelings on Godard though I, I think um, I, I find his film almost unwatchable and I would uh, question the quality of his films to be honest with you but with Charlie Chaplin I, I can see the, the technical expertise in them I just it doesn't do what it does for me and a part of me always kind of dies when I see kind of Chaplin films come into the collection because it means I'll have to basically buy something that I don't want and obviously you could say I don't have to buy it but to me I do obviously to keep my criterion collection up to date and it always seems to me that these films always get stuck at customs so I have to pay the £3 in tax as well as the £15 for the handling charges. Um, it's a maddening, it is maddening but it's also the downside of being a criterion addict so when Michelle Vodou came through the post I was at first a little annoyed um, that the film was just over two hours and that meant probably two hours of sitting through something I probably wasn't going to enjoy and I sat back and waited for the inevitable unfunny charade to play out and what I found was within minutes I was laughing and what's more it wasn't just the humour that got me this film had some seriously dark undertones from the off and perhaps it was just reassuring title cards showing me that Orson Welles was involved, albeit on a story basis, that perhaps this might be something slightly different. And indeed, Michelle Vadu is really took me by surprise. And I, I, th I think what I found quite surprising about it, I didn't enjoy this film, I actually loved it. Released in 1947, this is not a film that basks in the post-war party hangover, far from it in fact, as it is set in a far more bleaker time, notably the Great Depression and there is an impending sense of the coming dread throughout it. There is some conjecture as to what really happened with the involvement of Orson Welles. Apparently he was going to direct Chaplin himself. Um, or I've also heard that Chaplin simply liked the idea and purchased it off the ever financially broke Welles. No one really seems to know and it doesn't really matter anyway as far as I'm concerned because of course it is the end result that counts. Chaplin plays the titular Verdue, a loving husband and father to his wife and son, yet despite living a life of luxury as a banker, the glory times are firmly over. Banks are beginning to fail and investments are going very sour for him, and it all sounds quite familiar with what's been going on in the world at the moment. So what can he do to provide? Well, murder and steal, which he does by marrying which women and promptly killing them. After all, really, who is going to miss these people? Anyway... From beyond the grave during the film's opening sequence, Verdu invites us into his Devi's world. What follows is history, he says, as we look at his grave. Yeah, I think this introduction was a little too much for some to stomach because this film was destroyed by critics and audiences alike. He was actually shouted at for having even made it and perhaps they wanted some more of the same of his unfunny pretending to fall over all the time that I hate so much. But I think there's some kind of darker undertone to the backlash against the film. In America, Chaplin was beginning to make the headlines for the wrong reasons. Although living in the country, he had never given up his British passport. His tax affairs were coming into focus. And there was an accusation he was a communist. He had become a subversive foreigner as a self-confessed man of the world. Perhaps he himself had realised such idealism would be highly dangerous in the Cold War to come. It seems mildly concerning to me that the only Chaplin character I've ever liked is a murderous, arrogant bigamist, but nonetheless Monsieur Vadou is a rare film that managed to perfectly straddle so many different tonal and thematic shifts, from old-fashioned sight gags to searing criticism of middle-class pursuits that would give Renoir's rules of the game a run for its money. Now considered to be one of its finest, it's bar none my favourite film is, and I shall try to elaborate more. I recently watched the documentary After Porn Ends, a rather depressing film about the lives of porn stars after their careers are finished. The moral of the story was as bleak as it was tragic, porn never leaves you and society doesn't take kindly those of its forming of its trade. 
What struck me was that although porn is viewed and consumed by millions if not billions of people, it is judged with a rather harsh unflinching cruelty by the same people. It's one of the great moral contradictions we are both attracted and repulsed yet somehow feel superior in the knowledge that we are not one of them. It's what keeps us coming back for more like with the likes of kind of the Breaking Bad and the Sopranos characters who we kind of know we shouldn't really be attracted to but we are anyway. The new is one such creation. Chaplin does not beg us to like the character, we like him anyway, not because he is Charlie Chaplin, but because he appeals to that side of us that simply likes to watch bad people doing bad things. The news motive is money apparently, but even this could actually be contested. He does what he does because in reality he's really a crazed killer, yet his victims are not sweet and innocent folk, they are annoying, odious people. Do they deserve to die? Well, no, but rather like office workers in a superhero film, we don't exactly spend too long thinking about their demise as their buildings are crushed by superheroes and evil aliens. During the film's opening narration, Vendu from Beyond the Grave informs that after years of being a bank clerk, he took to liquidating members of the opposite sex purely as a business venture for the apparent noble cause of raising his wife and child. Yet the very next scene introduces the family of his recent quarry. They bicker, insult and abuse each other. Chaplin sets a slapstick tone with plates being hit over each other and sleeping old men, yet this is a very deliberate and personal piece of world creation. With a few exceptions that I'll get to later, the news liquidating are ticking time bombs on screen. We want to see them and take them down because they are actually quite horrible. Take the off-screen Thelma, whose disappearance is being discussed in the opening scene. Her own brother asks the questions, who would want to go on a honeymoon with her anyway? We can only assume she is cut from the same cloth as the rest of the family. We don't need to see Thelma to know we wouldn't miss her either. One of Vendu's wife is the horrid Linda, a nagging evil old hag who seems to know he is up to no good. He explains that he's gone up, he's been away in Indochina or somewhere like that, but if she can see what he's up to, why doesn't she do anything to stop him? And in effect, she has only herself to blame for what happens next. You could argue that it's an incredibly misogynistic film and it's something I was acutely aware of while I was watching it, but the issue is because we're having so much fun watching Vendu get up to his no good, it's hardly, it's hardly worth not dwelling on the fact that the film might not appeal to the PC degrade. Besides there is a rather telling moment when he takes a young girl off the street with originally with the idea that he's going to test a new poison on her and he makes her dinner and they begin to bond. and. And like him, she is a criminal, yet as they begin to discuss, they begin to form a genuine bond and a relationship that will carry on throughout the entire film and over several years. She's the only person who gets him. The pair discuss the nature of life. Would it be better to end it all early, they ask. What is so great about all this anyway, they muse. They talk themselves round and find that there is more to life. They are just adrift in it and Vendu spares her when she convinces him that humanity does exist and has its pleasures. And as the music swells with romantic chords, a broad smile crosses his face and we don't know what he is thinking about. It might be his wife and son, it might be his recollection of a walk in the park or something like that. But it's moments like this that make him more than just a cartoon killer. And it's moments like this where you realise that you actually like this rather despicable person. He isn't quite... and also he has his flaws. A lot of these kind of killers are almost too perfect, but I think it's part of his charm because... In a strange kind of way, he, he reminded me slightly of, slightly of someone like Vic Mackey from The Shield. You know, both kind of characters are architects of their own downfall and are often kind of just basically using up all the all the luck they possibly can. And it's fun to watch. You know, deep down, they have to be punished, but part of you loves a baddie and wants them to kind of go on and on. It is one of the most pessimistic films I've ever watched. And 
I find that quite strange because you know, made in the kind of the post-war period, you would have thought it would be a little bit more upbeat. But the film takes place pre-World War II and the stock markets are crashing and armies are massing. And what interests me was that Chaplin doesn't try to portray France as a kind of utopia. Indeed, it's a pretty horrible place. He is obsessed with money in the film and the most telling moments come when we meet his actual wife and child and she said they would happily live with no money and he clearly loves them and they have a nice house so what more can he possibly want and I think it's here Chapman is taking a rather cynical look at middle class obsession with wealth and status. Somehow he believes that money is legitimacy although he does not realise the happiness he thinks he craves is literally right there in front of him in the form of his wife and child. He is a kind of Frankenstein character, born into a world where material wealth is seen by some as a form of acceptance, or indeed he may even be kind of a psychopath, simply existing to kill and maim, spat out by a world going slowly mad. Regardless the reasoning, and why Vendu is a corrupt person from a corrupt world, it may be Chaplin is implying that the old system needed a kind of reset, something to snap itself out of the position it found itself in. The last words we hear from him don't offer us much in the way of hope either, and Given it was made in 1947, I think Chaplin might be saying that nothing has actually changed. And, and kind of given where we are now in the depths of an economic depression brought on by greed, he might just have a point that has echoed through the ages. For the most part, the action in the film takes place in kind of a mid-shots. And I don't kind of mean this um, to be kind of derogatory, really, because what I think this allows is that what kind of unfolds on camera seems to happen with a kind of very natural flow. And in one scene, a postman delivers a letter to Vendu who must, that must be signed for by one of his dead wives. And he runs up the stairs and pretends she is in the shower and signs it. And now there are no cutaways or reaction shots of the postman to see if he is buying it. The, the camera just pans up and we see Vendu work his deception. And I think to me it's quite refreshing to see a filmmaker that simply lets a film kind of go on with itself and not be kind of too intrusive or impose the kind of the director's style onto the film. And I think Chaplin just lets the character get on with what he is doing. I also love the way Chaplin lampoons melodrama. In one scene he is about to kill one of his wives uh, called Lydia and he looks out over the city which is clearly a set and he's talking some kind of romantic nonsense and even the kind of the score joins in with some suitably corny strings. And then comes the voice of Lydia demanding that he comes to bed and the score changes something more, more like something like Psycho as he moves towards the bedroom and we know what's going to come and and the next kind of morning we see him kind of counting her money and you can't help but kind of enjoy this and sort of feel like kind of Lydia has kind of dug her own grave in many respects. He also uses a recurring visual motif of train wheels running back and forth and it's a reminder that the film place takes in something of a modern environment. He could not get the character could not physically do what he's doing in a pre-industrial age and i think he needs to be one one step ahead of the game all the time and this is how the kind of the, the film's kind of narrative plates keep spinning and i think timing is obviously something chaplin knew so well and you know watch the scene when the detective comes to his house and calmly pouring him a drink the new asks on what charges he is being held um held on and the detective says bigamy and Vendu likes us like us realizes that this crime is not as bad as what is actually done and as the detective takes a long sip from his wine we wait until Vondu is hit with a caveat of 14 counts of murder and it is a genuinely funny yet incredibly suspenseful moment. Indeed the more I kind of think about the film I, 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 feel, I think of it more as a kind of noir in many respects it kind of lacks some of the conventional aspects of the genre its cheery score and comedic touches can't help but raise a smile but in essence it's as dark as anything like Dole Indemnity 
However, it's bleakness and misanthropic lead characters surrounded by vile, nagging women. In one scene, Vendu is trying to kill one of his wives in a small rowing boat. He even manages to place a rope around her necks on the pretext of showing her how he's going to lasso a fish. She has previously looked in the water and idiotically mistaken her own reflection for that of a monster. He's about to push her over the boat when off screen we hear yodelers and Vendu stands there with her neck in a rope clearly annoyed that his plan is being foiled. It is an absurdist moment in a film that doesn't that Tony doesn't try to pander to the established Chaplin fans. I wonder how many would have wondered, sat there wondering how this lovable tramp has ended up killing women for fun. And and I, I think it's perhaps no surprise really that he was making films at this stage because he was fantastically wealthy. I mean, he was signing million dollar contracts you know, back in like 1914 and around then. He was a very, very rich man. And I wonder if perhaps that these films he was making them for him you know these are the ones he wanted to really kind of do as opposed to the kind of the comedies and this film was kind of derided and sank without a trace and it was re-released in the 60s and it, i suppose its journey to classic status has been a long one but for me it m might be just enough for me to go back and kind of reevaluate these chaplin films because because i think this might be the catalyst really that kind of stokes my interest um it's a, a pretty decent package and it's packed with features um there's a a documentary um a 2003 documentary about the making of the film um some kind of radio rabbits and a really interesting booklet in this version and overall just a very very pleasing film and i'm really glad for once that i was able to pick this up so that's gonna be it for this episode i will be back soon with another um, many thanks for listening and if you want to contact me with me you can find me on twitter at 24 framescast you can email me at 24 framescast at gmail.com and you can come over to the blog at 24 framescast.blogspot.com also listen to my other podcast with Joachim Thiessen which is the masters of cinema cast you can find us on itunes and um, also you can follow us on Twitter at MOCcast. So many thanks for listening and I'll be back soon. Bye.